Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Our guest today can do a victory lap. Uh, Bart Gelman's a staff writer at The Atlantic, a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner, author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden in the American Surveillance State, and Angler, the Cheney Vice Presidency. First of all, Bart, welcome back to the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get into your latest piece on Michael Flynn, which I find to be absolutely fascinating, I, I wanted to go back to the piece you wrote you must have written in the late summer of 2020, the election that could break America. That's right. And you wrote, if the vote is close, Donald Trump could easily throw the election into chaos and subvert the result. Who will stop him? So you wrote that months before the 2020 election, correct? I did. <laughs> so I'm going to read you the lead here. There's a cohort of close observers of our presidential election, scholars and lawyers and political strategists, who find themselves in the uneasy position of intelligence analysts in the months before 9-11. As November 3rd approaches, their screens are blinking red, alight with warnings that the political system does not know how to absorb. They see the obvious signs that we all see, but they also know subtle things that most of us do not. Something dangerous has hove into view and the nation is lurching into its path. And wow, uh, <laughs> you call that. So take me back to the summer of 2020. I remember this story and many people that I know thought, okay, well, this is a danger, but this is exaggerated. This couldn't really happen. I mean, they couldn't really use the Pennsylvania state legislature to overturn the election. What were you seeing that made you write this piece that turned out to be so prescient? It started out as a thought experiment. I started with the proposition that Donald Trump is simply not going to concede the election no matter what. Uh, that it's just not in him. Yeah. Uh, he will not say, I lost you one. And he will continue to assert his victory and that, the, uh, that Biden's victory is fraudulent to his last breath. And if he takes that seriously, if we take that seriously, uh, if we ask ourselves, what's the maximum a person could do if he was entirely unbound by law and norms and any sense of common decency, uh, what would he do? And one of the places that led was uh, to try to create fake electors, was to uh, try to get the legislatures of the six or seven states that are Biden states, but are controlled by Republican legislatures, to throw away the popular vote and to simply say our electors are going to be Trump electors. And it turns out that is what he tried to do. He tried to do it, but he wasn't ready yet. In some ways, your warning was ahead of the curve because the folks in Pennsylvania and Michigan just weren't geared up to pull the trigger back then. But we've learned so much since then. So tell me what it's like for you to watch this whole scenario play out, to realize what the president was going to do. As you said, things were bearing down on the nation's creaky electoral machinery. Did it turn out to be actually worse than you thought it would be or what? I mean, did you feel vindicated? What was your reaction as you learned all of the things that were going on behind the scenes? Well, I was just horrified by the piece to begin with. Yeah. I was wishing as hard as I could that <laughs> my article was going to prove to be wrong. And watching it all play out, I saw that one of the main barriers against Trump was that the idea of throwing away the popular vote, of substituting electors, 
was so outrageous, so beyond the norm that the legislators, as you say, couldn't quite get their arms around it. They couldn't quite uh, force themselves to do it. And what's happened in the the year and a half since is that this idea has been much more nearly legitimated. It is yeah. much more part of the uh, Republican operative thinking now that legislatures can do this. Uh, there is a Supreme Court case mm-hmm. that's coming up for next term uh, that the, the Supreme Court just granted cert to this case in North Carolina that is directly about redistricting and about something called the election clause. But it's also going to bring in something called the electors clause, which states that each state will allocate electors uh, according to, in any manner that the legislature so chooses. So the legislature does formally have the power under some circumstances to designate electors whether or not their voters agree with them. Uh, and the Supreme Court may be about to give them uh, substantially more room to do that. And they certainly become a much more respectable argument legally. Well, I reread your piece, and, and, it, and it did strike me that in, in many ways it might be a blueprint for the next election rather than simply a prediction for what happened in 2020. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, that's exactly what I think. <laughs> I think that Trump and, and a lot of people acting independently of Trump have analyzed what stopped Trump from seizing power the last time? What stopped him from overturning the election? And they're going around to each of those obstacles and systematically trying to get rid of them. So that includes running candidate against Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. That didn't work out for Trump and trying to get Governor Kemp out as well. It includes a guy on an obscure board of elections in Michigan who refused to block certification of Michigan's victory for Biden. He's gone now. It includes the Georgia legislature taking the secretary of state off the list of people who can certify the election so that even if Raffensperger wins re-election, he will no longer have the power of certification of a future Democratic victory, if that's the way it goes. Now, of course, Trump could outright win the nomination sure. and win the election yeah. in the next election. But he and his people are working hard to make sure he won't have to. So, again, I want to stick with this for a moment. I want to get to Flynn in, in just a second. But, you know, going back to what you wrote, again, in the summer of 2020, it appeared in the November issue of uh, The Atlantic. And, you know, all the smart kids thought that it was uh, it was catastrophizing and it was, uh, you know, oh, this isn't going to happen, right? I mean, am I right about this? Do you remember the, you know, the kind of that sense, like, Bart, seriously, this is not going to happen. I mean, there was a certain amount of skepticism. And when you make a really big claim, you should expect right. skepticism. Uh, I, I wasn't surprised by that reaction. So you wrote, in this election year of 2020, in this election year of plague and recession and catastrophized politics, the mechanisms of decision are at meaningful risk of breaking down. Close students of election law and procedure are warning that conditions are ripe for a constitutional crisis that would leave the nation without an authoritative result. We have no fail-safe against that calamity, thus the blinking red lights. And when I read that, I thought, and you know what? We've done really nothing to fix that, have we? We have not fixed that at all. And so the, the blinking red lights that you saw back then, they have to be blinking even redder and hotter now. Yeah, well, that was 
the thesis of my subsequent uh, cover story in The Atlantic, which was titled January 6th was practice. <laughs> it was. All right. So let, let's talk about Michael Flynn. I, I find this to be an extraordinary topic because throughout the Trump years, I have been fascinated by the number of people whose brains have been broken by what we have had. And, and the question has always been, were they always like that? Uh, did something happen? Did they change? Um, are they making a calculation? Which brings us to Michael Flynn who's clearly been broken in some fundamental way or um, is still broken. So in in this recent piece in The Atlantic, you explore how the three-star general who was renowned for his skill connecting the dots and finding terrorists somehow along the way became enmeshed in conspiracy theories that helped fuel the threat to our democracy. Let's play just a little bit of Flynn's testimony in this video deposition with Liz Cheney, which was broadcast during a recent hearing. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? Take the fifth. You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? The fifth. The fifth. (laughs) So as you write, Bart, here was a former national security advisor refusing to opine on the foundational requirement of a constitutional democracy. This is a guy who had sworn an oath to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And there he was. Michael Flynn has become Michael Flynn. So let's talk about him. You know, because one of the things that that became very clear in this week's hearing is Michael Flynn is at the center of a lot of what happened. There he was on December 18th, sitting down in the Oval Office with with other crazies, trying to convince the president of the United States to, what, seize, have the military seize voting machines. So just talk to me about Michael Flynn and and what's happened to him. Well, you have to start with this before and after picture. He had an exceptionally successful career in military intelligence. He rose from second lieutenant to lieutenant general, uh, which very, very few people in the Army do. He was considered one of the best. Uh, When he worked for Stanley McChrystal in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, he was credited with real innovations in how you find and kill insurgents. And they had... Uh, remarkable successes. They were flying 12 to 15 missions a night, and they were uh, using intelligence to get inside the decision curve of the bad guys. And he was renowned for it. He wrote a, a famous paper on intelligence reform and so forth. But when he got to the DIA, where he was made director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, his reputation took a big nosedive. Uh, Morale was a mess, and he became known for something called Flynn facts, which were ideas he got in his head and asked people uh, to go find evidence for them, but they weren't true. Uh, Or ideas that he said and was corrected and then kept saying, like, Iran is responsible for killing more Americans than Al-Qaeda ever did. That just isn't true. Uh, But it, it was a a pet point that he had, and he kept asking people to find evidence for it. But that's nowhere near what he's become now. When you you look at the before picture, here's the after. The after is a guy 
who says that Italian satellites were used to change votes on voting machines from Trump to Biden, uh, who believes that a global malevolent conspiracy involving the World Economic Forum and the EU and World Bank and every other international institution has plotted to invent a hoax called COVID, that COVID vaccines are secretly implanted with microchips uh, that are designed for mind control, uh, that they may be delivering the COVID vaccine in salad dressing for people who refuse to take the vaccine itself. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, This stuff is just truly wacko. And I was trying to figure out how and when he fell off the cliff. Well, this is the big question, isn't it? Because going back to your piece, this guy was not always broken like this. He was not always crazy. I mean, he, you know, this is, you know, reading his biography, he was the American success story. I mean, homecoming king in high school, co-captain of a state championship football team, voted best looking in classmates. I mean, he's, he was a hero. He rescues this pair of toddlers from the path of an empty car rolling down the hill as a teenager, right? I mean, he was known as the guardian of the little ones. I mean, he, you know, he's he, he was a hero, right? I mean, you know, as a first lieutenant during the invasion of Grenada, he dove off a 40-foot cliff to rescue two comrades struggling in a riptide. I mean, he was a really extraordinary individual who rose in the ranks of the military, as you point out, to be a general, to be named, you know, director of intelligence. I mean, he had to have been regarded very highly by the military, right? Or did, or did, or does his rise expose some flaw in the military vetting? What, what was your conclusion there? I mean, was, was he okay back then when he was rising or, or did they just miss the fact that he was broken? Well, yeah, you, you put your finger on a really important question. You know, was there, was there something wrong with the vetting process? Was yeah. he like this all along? Or did he have the seeds of this sort of conspiratorial thinking? And there is one theory that some of his friends put forward that maybe he did always have uh, some of the crazy in him, that he was, uh, he was carried along by the strictures of military life and by a very strong and able commander in Stanley McChrystal. Uh, and so... There was less opportunity for expression of that aspect of his personality. Uh, I think there may be some little piece of that that's true. In fact, of the five or so theories that people offered me for what happened to Michael Flynn, I think there's some truth probably in all of them. Another one is that the trauma of being fired Mm -hmm. as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and then the subsequent uh, trauma of... uh, being uh, charged with lying to the FBI, fired as national security advisor, convinced him that the deep state was indeed out to get him uh, and that there was this uh, conspiracy against good people. That's a possibility. It's also possible that he has been attracted by the money because there is a lot of money in it for people who tell MAGA world what it wants to hear. Uh, He's going around and giving these speeches to an event called Reawaken America that is going around the country and attracting thousands and thousands of people, Trump-sized crowds, each of whom pays $250 to attend this weekend confab. And uh, Flynn talks to them about all the crazy things. 
and is earning a, a good chunk of change from that. The thing is, he strikes me as a guy who really believes what he's saying. If really? you look at the body language and the facial expression and the emotion that is clearly behind it, uh, he is not one of these guys who will just say anything. Uh, if it sounds good, he's not Giuliani. He's not Roger Stone. He's a believer. So, I mean, you know, Stanley McChrystal really respected him, right? I mean, he he put together a task force that turned into this extraordinary machine that killed our Zarqawi, you know, was then leader of al-Qaeda in, in Iraq. He was seen as hardworking. Um, he and McChrystal were this, this deadly team, and then McChrystal brings him along to Afghanistan. So, so tell me about, you did sit down with uh, General Barry McCaffrey, who, uh, who made a fact-finding trip to Afghanistan, and he said that he was dazzled by Flynn, that he had this map, he had this immense command of the terrorist forces in Afghanistan, the nature of the culture, what was going on in Pakistan. He thought, you know, God, this guy is flipping magic, right? So, you know, again, what, what, did, what, did, what did McCaffrey ultimately conclude? You, you know, that, that Flynn was successful as a follower, but he struggled as a leader? Well, McCaffrey had several things to say, and he was quite outspoken on Flynn. As you say, he was immensely impressed with Flynn during a fact-finding tour to Afghanistan. And this is a guy who, over his four-star career, had been briefed by a lot of intelligence officers at a lot of big events. And he thought that Flynn was one of the very best he had seen. When he looks at what Flynn has become, he thinks a number of things. But but the one he was willing to say that a lot of uh, Flynn's old comrades told me only on background or off the record was that he thought that he was actually demented. That, uh, yeah. you know, he's not a doctor. Or I'm not a doctor. But he saw no explanation other than uh, a mental disorder to explain what's happened to Flynn. And, you know, a fascinating thing that's not in my article, someone wrote to me after the piece got published and sent me a video clip in which Flynn said, speaking of COVID, that hydroxychloroquine is safe. And he knows that because he's been taking it for 30 years, he said. Now, okay. I can't imagine why he's been taking it for 30 years, but there's a whole medical literature on the potential uh, mental disorders that can arise from long-term use of hydroxychloroquine. So that's an, a, a, a new hypothesis that you could put on the table and only as doctors would know. So again, I, I'm not a psychologist and I, I don't want to practice this, but, but I have seen you know, people who have been broken by being fired or being investigated or being arrested or being humiliated in some particular way. And it's interesting, you, uh, you talk with uh, James Clapper, who fired Flynn um, as you know, director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and he told you that he thinks that it was the, that humiliation that led him to the spiral. Um, and, and he also offered you a second theory that, that, uh, that maybe he was just deployed for so long in Iraq and Afghanistan chasing terrorists that it kind of consumed him. If you spend all of that time you know, going down these rabbit holes, hunting terrorists and honing this killing machine that some people get unhinged by all of that, you know, that that, that, that did something to him as, as well. Does that seem plausible to you? As well? Does that seem plausible to you too? Well, so there's a lot of years when Flynn is deeply engaged in this very black and white world of good guys and bad guys, of good and evil, of life and death, of 
flying into little compounds and jumping out of helicopters and killing everybody inside. And Clapper thought there might be a, a form of uh, PTSD going on here. I think maybe more likely there's a sense in which he had this Manichaean view of everything is, is good or evil, uh, that he could connect the dots and that he could make a very simple distinction and that his dot detector has been warped over the years. And he now is seizing on little bits of things that I guess are supposed to be evidence, like some coincidence about Italian military satellites uh, flying through the air at a certain point of time. That is just so bizarre. This sounds like I'm trivializing, but it, it sort of I had this flash, you know, Carrie Matheson in Homeland, you know, with all of the various charts and everything that you spend that much time doing that kind of, you know, crazy conspiracy theory. And then something snaps to you that it suddenly becomes like plausible that Italian satellites are changing votes, which I don't know of anyone outside the deepest, deepest corners of the fever swamp think of it as anything but insane. Right. I mean, it used to be that he would get a data point and he would have to assess. He would right. have to look for confirmation and verification. He would have to do analysis. He, he would have to use reasoning. He would have to uh, use judgment. Those are the qualities that you get in a good intelligence officer or a good journalist. Now there isn't a hypothesis he won't endorse. The, you know, every crazy thing that he hears, he's repeating. So Flynn is fired by Barack Obama, obviously is looking for some sort of redemption and bonds with Donald Trump. What did Donald Trump see in Michael Flynn? What did Michael Flynn see in Donald Trump? Well, just to correct one thing, he says he was fired by Barack Obama, mm -hmm. but in fact, he was fired by his bosses, by uh, Mike Vickers and James right. Clapper, who right. were respectively the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and the Director of National Intelligence. They notified Barack Obama uh, after the fact. So Flynn believes that Obama was his enemy, and that may have helped drive him into the Trump camp, mm -hmm. uh, but he's actually sort of making that up out of whole cloth. Uh, what did he see in Trump? What did Trump see in him? You know, I, I mean, Flynn is a direct talker. He has this affect about him that he'll say what he thinks no matter what anyone else thinks. Trump likes that. He likes uh, the kind of chiseled good looks and the military uniform. Uh, Flynn uh, must have been attracted by by. Trump's attacks on the deep state, which he thought had victimized him, and by Trump's loathing for Obama, which Flynn had his own reason for, for developing. Sure. And back then, of course, Donald Trump had that, I would say, short-lived fascination with all things generals. He really loved generals. And, um, you know, most of those guys are gone now, but uh, his administration was stocked with them. The amazing thing about Michael Flynn, though, is how short a time uh, he served as national security advisor. So having been humiliated by being fired under the Obama administration, he then serves like a few weeks um, under the Trump administration and then is fired by Donald Trump and subsequently investigated by the FBI. I mean, for a guy with his background, you know, having gone from success and from, you know, to success, uh, all of this, I mean, yeah, you can understand how that might, you know, put you around the, the bend. 
So Donald Trump fires him and then seems to regret it almost immediately and doesn't hold that against him. And Flynn apparently doesn't hold the fact that he was humiliated by Donald Trump against Donald Trump. Can you explain that dynamic? Well, that's because they blame the FBI and the FBI was an enemy of the of Trump and the Trump administration for lots of obvious reasons, largely because the, the FBI was investigating Trump and his people at a pretty regular clip. Here's what happened. The election takes place. Trump wins. During the transition, Obama issues sanctions against Russia. And the Trump administration wants better relations with Russia uh, for reasons that you can fill in the blank on. Hmm. And Flynn calls the Russian ambassador to Washington and says, don't overreact to these sanctions. Uh, we're going to change things when we come in. And he has two or three conversations like that. I think it's two. Now, these are overheard in the standard course of U.S. surveillance of uh, Russian high officials. And so a report goes around that the incoming national security advisor is doing diplomacy with a Russian official. And this alarms the government security apparatus because you're supposed to wait your turn to do foreign policy. And there is technically uh, a law against doing private diplomacy uh, called the Logan Act, although it's seldom, if ever, enforced. But the FBI decides to go and ask him, are you talking to the Russians? Uh, what are you talking about? And mm -hmm. Flynn lies to them. Flynn says, no such call. Now, it's a crime to lie to the FBI. And Flynn eventually pleads guilty to lying to the FBI. But the real crime for Trump was that Flynn lied to the vice president. Flynn lied to Mike Pence because Pence was supposed to go on television for one of the weekend shows and asked Flynn, he said, I know I'm going to be asked about this. The story in the Washington Post that says you were negotiating with the Russians. Is there any truth to that? Flynn lies and says, no, there isn't. And so Pence gives his word on national television that no such calls took place. Mm. When Pence found out that Flynn was lying, he was very angry uh, and pressure brought to bear on Trump and Trump fired him. But you're right. I think Trump regretted it very soon. He thinks Flynn is uh, his guy and loyal. And he is a beloved figure in Trump world. So you asked for an interview with Flynn. Um, you'd actually had lunch with Flynn, you know, a few years ago. Uh, Flynn had actually said he liked your your Cheney biography. So, you, I mean, so when you had lunch with him, was he was he like, OK, <laughs> some sort of there's a much more technical way of asking that. But was he like, what did you think when you had lunch with him? You didn't think like this guy is unhinged, crazy. What was it? What was he like back then in person? He was a well-spoken, buttoned-down, uh, one-star general. Uh, we were at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, I, he sat to my left at a small table with Stan McChrystal as uh, one of the other guys at the table. We talked about Cheney. We talked about foreign policy. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the, the recent uh, presidential election. Uh, this was just as Obama had been elected but had not yet taken office. It was a normal conversation. Okay. I was favorably impressed with the guy. I knew something of his reputation. Uh, and he certainly was friendly and respectful 
toward me. Uh, when, it, when the time came that I wanted to do this piece for the Atlantic, you know, I tried to approach him and bodyguards pushed me away. And I went to his brother, Joe Flynn. Kind of his gatekeeper. And asked for an interview. Mm-hmm. And Joe said he doesn't want to talk to uh, left-wing media like the Atlanta. <laughs> well, I was imagining, you know, having lunch with him because he's a one-star general. And really, deep down, none of us want our generals in the military to be crazy. I mean, I I grew up with, you know, fail-safe and... Uh, Peter Sellers and I, you, you just, you just don't want crazy generals out there. So you, you went to Ohio in February to watch him at a traveling roadshow called Reawaken America. You mentioned this earlier and you weren't that impressed with his stage performance. You didn't quite get, get his appeal. He's, he's not really that charismatic, is he, in his new role? Yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. He, he is absolutely beloved. I mean, hmm. One of the other speakers, uh, by way of nothing, I mean, for, for no apparent reason, just blurted out, Jesus is my God, Trump is my president, and Mike Flynn is my general. And there's roaring applause from okay. the crowd. Uh, he's a beloved figure. But when he actually stands on stage, he's sort of rambling, meandering uh, from subject to subject. Um, he doesn't have that elementary speaker's appreciation for applause lines. Sometimes he'll say something and he'll try to say something else and he'll be surprised that he's interrupted by applause. He's not, he's not looking for those zingers. But people in, in Trump world see him as one of them. They see him as an ordinary guy. He doesn't put on airs. Uh, they see him as a military hero. And it doesn't matter that he doesn't have a politician's sort of natural feel for an audience. So you talked to Steve Bannon about him, and Steve Bannon is, is a big Mike Flynn fan, isn't he? Well, he is respectful of Flynn's power over audiences. He thinks that what Flynn's doing with this Reawaken America tour is important politics, that he is impressing thousands of people at a time and getting them to get involved in politics, getting them on mailing lists for fundraising, uh, getting them to run for local offices, for precincts or county offices. And he thinks that Mike Flynn is a more than plausible candidate for running mate for Donald Trump in 2024. Okay, Steve Bannon is is out there, but he doesn't actually think that Donald Trump is going to put Mike Flynn on his ticket in 2024. I mean, really? (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) Please tell me there's something. What does Steve Bannon really think? I I mean, he's a guy who will say anything. And at any given moment, uh, what he says and what he truly believes could be two different things. But what he said is that he thinks that Flynn is high on the list for Trump for 2024. And he thinks that if Trump doesn't run, that Flynn will run for the Republican nomination. Wow. Okay. So you also quote Roger Stone, who also spoke at this, this Ohio rally, is saying there's one person who is absolutely central to the future of the country absolutely central to the struggle for freedom that we face. This is a man who is not a politician. I think he, uh, I don't think he much likes politics. This is a man who served his country. He's actually a war hero. I speak of that great American patriot, General Michael Flynn. And let me say this, Roger Stone added, General Flynn's greatest acts of public service lie ahead. So with friends like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, but you know, it's interesting, you, you mentioned something about Michael Flynn. You think that he believes what he says. I was interested watching the hearing this week, uh, the January 6th hearing, and they played a clip from Roger Stone at a rally where he was talking about, you know, 
the fate of the country it will be determined in this election. This is good versus evil, dark versus light. You know, if we don't win this, it's, you know, a thousand years of dark, whatever it was he had to say. And the thing about Roger Stone is you're just looking at him and you go, this guy is bullshitting and he knows he's bullshitting. That's exactly what I think of Roger Stone. Roger okay. Stone, yeah, he, so his, his latest act is that he has been born again and now lives only to serve Jesus. And he told the crowd that when he looked at the White House after Biden was elected, he literally saw a demonic portal open over the White House. Uh, as a as a funnel of Satan um, it, it, to the Biden administration, uh, and he smiles this big grin. I mean, there's yeah. no correspondence between what right. he says and and uh, what he believes and, and what the truth is. It, 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 he will say truly anything, and has done so his whole career. Well, this is what Mark Leibovich uses the phrase, you know, you get the joke, and you know, Roger Stone seems to like get the joke, and and he knows that he's part of the joke. Uh, but but Michael Flynn does not get the joke. I mean, Michael Flynn earnestly believes all this stuff. He really, really believes this. Yeah, look, as best I can tell, just you know, with my uh, reporter's truthometer, with looking at his <laughs> face and his body language and the emotional timber of his voice, he seems to be speaking from the heart. So there you have this guy who um, I think as a non-psychologist, we would look at as, as a broken sort of figure. And there he is sitting in the Oval Office on December 18th with Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. And the president of the United States is taking advice from him. And I guess, you know, just stepping back from this political moment, that, that as bad as you thought things might be, the fact that the president of the United States decided that he was going to turn to some of the craziest conspiracy theorists in the country and then rely on some of the most dangerous, violent, domestic extremists is really an extraordinary moment in our society. I mean, that's kind of what the committee was laying out this week. You know, the the fact that he had that crazy meeting where they talked about the military seizing the voting machines, appointing Sidney Powell a special counsel. When that blew up, uh, he then goes back to his, you know, his private uh, his bedroom in the White House and tweets out in the middle of the night, you know, you have to come. We have a big rally on January 6th. You know, be there. It will be wild. And which gets the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys all all charged up. What is Michael Flynn's nexus with groups like that? I mean, is is it are 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 there factions there? Is is it an undifferentiated mass of crazy, violent, extremist, reckless radicals? What? Well, you know, they have found each other. They were simpatico in their outlooks, and the thing about the Oath Keepers is the, that they recruit. Uh, primarily from former military and former law enforcement. They purport in their bylaws to be serving the Constitution. Their somewhat twisted originalist view of the Constitution is that the ultimate power belongs to state militias. They are representative of those militias, they think, and they are defending the Constitution. And so you see photographs of Flynn being bodyguarded by these Oath Keepers and consorting with them. What they say in private, God only knows. Uh, you know, I couldn't get to that. So if Donald Trump returns to the White House, what is Michael Flynn's role going to be? 
what happens to Michael Flynn if there's a Trump 2.0? I know I'm, I'm asking you to speculate because we have no idea, obviously. But we'll so, yeah, so now we're we're into the uh, the terrain of of uh, wild surmise. Yes, but here's how I look at it: Trump found out especially the second part of his administration in a number of ways, but uh, most of all, when he tried to overturn the election, that there are limits that the professional bureaucracy uh, will stand up for. And there are certain things they won't do. And so the Justice Department pushed back when he tried to get justice to declare the election to be corrupt. The military made very clear that it was not going to have any part in policing the election, and it was not going to support him in declaring the Insurrection Act. He's looking for people who will do what he tells them, Mm -hmm. who are completely on his side, completely Mm -hmm. loyal. And Flynn has showed himself, above all, to be that. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Flynn uh, back in government, working for Trump in a second administration, because Trump can rely on him. Flynn is not going to wake up one day and say, well, now, boss, you're going too far. I mean, Flynn is already there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this may be wild surmise, but this is what I've been thinking of as I've been watching this testimony. As, as you watch Pat Cipollone or you watch Cassidy Hutchinson or you watch the, the leaders of the Department of Justice, that, that Trump has learned a lesson that he can't have those people in his administration. Now, obviously, there were a lot of people who rationalized being part of Trump 1.0. And I suppose there would be people who would say, well, I need to go into Trump 2.0 because I need, I would be the adult in the room or I would be the person who would prevent the terrible things from happening. But my sense is that Trump does realize why he needs people like Rudy and Sidney Powell and, and people like this, you know, that we may be rolling our eyes. But these are the people that that were loyal to him when he most needed it and will do whatever he says. And so when Steve Bannon talks about what a you know a reelected Trump would be, you know, he'd be wild, he'd be off the hook, he would, you know, not give a shit, he would never face the voters again. Bannon's right, isn't he? I mean, but Bannon has a sense of what it would be like if, in fact, you had a president who knew that that there were no checks on him and that he never had to face the voters again. Well, you look, in the first Trump administration, he was limited in who he could hire because there were a lot of establishment Republicans who simply wouldn't work for him especially in the national security field. I mean, Flynn was very lightly qualified to be national security advisor, despite an impressive military career. And the same was true across the board in in government. It was very hard for Trump to get traditionally qualified people. But the next time, he's not going to want them. Next time, he doesn't want anyone who thinks of himself as the adult in the room. Trump does not like to be told no, or boss, that's a terrible idea, or boss, that's illegal. And he's going to be looking more, I think, as president for the people who will do exactly what he wants and come up with creative ways to do it. Well, as the guy that predicted that this was really going to be dangerous and bad things could happen, has anything surprised you about what we've learned in the last six months, seven months about what was going on between the election and January 6th? Did anything shock you in retrospect? Oh, I'm surprised all the time. Uh, And I am shocked by the number of people who would have thought of themselves as uh, public servants over the years, a number of people in the Republican Party and Republican operatives who have wholeheartedly adopted uh, the election lie, who have looked for more and more loopholes in the system that could subvert 
the, the vote count next time. I mean, they're not just passively going along with Trump. There are huge, huge cohorts in the Republican Party who are pioneering the way for even crazier, even more outrageous or even more unlawful ways to give Trump and the Republican Party advantages in the next election. I think that that we have only one party right now that is willing to lose an election. And that is a, a dangerous place to be in as a democracy. No, I, I agree with you. In, in in some sense, you know, the fact that it turns out that the Trump is a narcissistic, uh, you know, man who has no respect for the rule of law and would do anything to hold on to power is is just simply to reiterate what we've known about Donald Trump all along. But to watch the Republican Party see this, and particularly now, even now, we're sort of having a recapitulation of January 7th, you know, where everyone looked at what happened and got, OK, we're done with this guy. This is terrible. This is horrible. And then they get over it. Well, now with all of the evidence coming out about uh, what was done and how fragile the system is to watch the number of you know, quote unquote responsible Republicans kind of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, we're going we're to go along with that. In many ways, that is far more shocking than the fact that Donald Trump turns out to be who we thought he was. Donald Trump does what he does. The number of people who enabled him is shocking. The number of people who know everything now and still go along with it. I think historians are going to look at that as 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 one of the real break points. Right. I mean, it's like it's like it's like in the movie where you expose all of the corruption and all of the evil. And then everybody looks at each other and goes, yeah, so what? And they shrug. Right. We're, we're living through that yeah. movie. You know, that's not the way we usually make those movies. Yeah, it's astonishing. It's uh, dispiriting. There is a fraction of humanity that is attracted to the authoritarian political figure, wants law and order and a tough central figure. And th that is a big piece of Trump's backing in the electorate. But he has passionate supporters. Uh, there are some Republicans who are afraid of them. And there are some Republicans who, who are opportunistically uh, seeing the advantage uh, in being in the vanguard of Trumpism and are pushing it to new boundaries uh, right. around the country. And we are not going to solve the problem that one third of the electorate believes the election was stolen until their leaders stop telling them that. And that does not appear to be uh, something that is imminent. Bart Gelman, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast again. It is a fascinating piece, Whatever Happened to Michael Flynn. Uh, Bart is a staff writer at The Atlantic, three-time Pulitzer Prize winner, author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden, The American Surveillance State, and Angler, the Cheney Vice Presidency. And Bart, we didn't even get to talk about what you must think of Liz Cheney, having written a biography of her dad. I mean, you know, among other things that were not on your bingo card, I'm guessing that having a Cheney be the you know star of this political moment, I, I'm guessing that that was not something that you saw coming. Did you? I didn't see it coming, but it, <laughs> that's actually not that surprising because one of the things I thought about Cheney is is uh, Dick Cheney and, and and Liz is that they are people of principle. They have been wrong about many things. They are on the fringes of the political spectrum in many areas, but they actually do believe in America. They do believe in the Constitution, and they're willing to stand up. Bart, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. 
The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.